So now that, uh, that my dad has retired for the second time, I hope, and maybe the last, he and mom spend a whole lot of time together in the afternoons. And she's been trying really hard to convince him to get hooked on Dr. Phil with her. <laughs> right? I, think, I really think she's seen every episode, and I know she records it, and she says she only does it because seeing all the crazy people that go on there, on that program, make her realize that our family isn't so nuts after all. And I'm sure she met my brother by that. I know she wasn't talking about me. But to be fair, to be fair, Dr. Phil has been truly helpful to a lot of people, whether they're Christians or or non-Christians alike, because he's helped people take a hard look at life, show them how to deal with real steps to make improvements and corrections in relationships and and finance and and health and parenting, and I, I commend him for that. And, you know, at one point he even made the uh, top 50 most influential Christians list. Well, I'll say he barely made it. He was number 50, but I wasn't anywhere near there, so I commend him for that too. But, you know, I don't doubt that many folks have benefited from listening to his advice. My only concern is that as believers, we have to be heavily discerning and ensure that a daily dose of advice programming doesn't become a substitute for regular Bible study and prayer and seeking after God. And we have to be wise enough to know if the advice that we're getting from pop psychologists and modern-day philosophers corresponds to biblical principles or if it's based on self-focused, new-age principles that never bring glory to God and always lead us away from the Father. And, you know, you really can't miss the fact that many television programs and cable networks are just chucked full of teachers who want to pass on to us their particular brand of wisdom, don't they? Right? Men and women who are eager to tell us how to live the good life and gain wealth and raise good kids and improve your marriage and get that dream job. And all that stuff is great, and under the right motivation, it can have some benefit. But the problem is that our postmodern church and many professed Christians have become to tend to ape that kind of pop culture behavior and that spin on life in an effort for us to seem approachable and relevant. So that now, instead of relying on the authority of God's word and the power of the cross and the atoning blood of Jesus and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, many mainline denominations have either dumbed down their preaching and their teaching, or they've channeled all of it into a vehicle whose only purpose is to champion social justice causes. And I read a funny little spoof that a pastor wrote about that, about visiting a church like that for the first time that kind of illustrates this, so I want to share it with you. He said, last Sunday I walked in the door of the First Mount Sinai seeker-friendly church of love and acceptance. He said, a a nicely dressed female usher approached me and shook my hand and said in a friendly voice, good morning, sir, may I take your coat? Sure, I replied, taking off my coat which she hung out of sight only to approach me again with a follow-up question. And in that same pleasant voice, she said, Sir, may I take your brain? He said, I stood there in puzzlement for a minute, and I said, Excuse me? The usher, he wrote, continues to look at me with that same sweet smile, and she asks again as if I didn't hear her, Can I take your brain, sir? So laughingly, I ask, What would you need my brain for? The usher's bright smile widens across her face, and she says confidently, oh, you don't need it when you get here to church. We don't do any thinking. We just believe. It has nothing whatsoever to do with your mind. 
That doesn't sound like a very godly way to approach gaining wisdom, does it? With the average person today presuming that Christianity is completely bereft of intelligence, and too many pulpits succumbing to the lie that anything intellectual can't be spiritual or exciting or worshipful. But the flip side of that is just as bad because purely human wisdom, especially for the sake of advancing a particular cause, is no better. In fact, one Christian author named Paul Proctor wrote, he said, the, the social gospel and its increasing popular social justice campaign is not an acceptable substitute for preaching repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He says, because in the end, although the flesh for a time is fed and is comforted, the soul of sinners is abandoned to biblical ignorance. Because disobedient do-gooders have spiritually sidetracked the wisdom of the church and its mission. Sounds like a lot of churches out there, doesn't it? But you know, either way, there's nothing really new about humanity's search for wisdom. It's been pursued in every culture since the beginning of history. The Egyptians had their great sages, and you know, the Greeks produced great philosophers like Pythagoras and Plato and Aristotle. The Roman world of Paul's day, especially in Paul's day, was full of philosophers and wannabe philosophers who tried to attract followers on the street corners and in the marketplaces, just like people today try to attract followers on Facebook and on Twitter. And we kind of talked about this last week when we looked at the names of the different leaders that the church was giving allegiance to, whether they wanted to be followers of Paul or followers of Apollos or of Peter or of Christ. And when Paul heard about all this division that was going on in the church, he wrote a really stern letter to the church at Corinth, reminding them that there's just one message, just one message that all of those men preached, and that it came directly from God and not from any human wisdom. So that's where our lectionary reading takes us today is 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. So Paul writes, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But to we who are being saved, we know that it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. So you can see in the text this morning, Paul starts out by making a contrast here between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And he begins to lay out for us the reasons that he didn't use human wisdom to shape the message that he so boldly proclaimed every place that he preached. And he starts out by actually admitting that the message of the cross, when you compare it to the wisdom of this world, sounds pretty foolish, doesn't it? In fact, the word that he used here for foolish is the, the Greek word that we get the, our English word moron from. But that begs the question, who really is the moron here? Is it the, is it the pastors or is it the secular philosophers? I mean, which, which one really possesses understanding and, and rationality? And 
you can see from this passage that the Apostle Paul really confronted the gurus of his day and of the world directly, didn't he? Saying that it was God's purpose to destroy the wisdom of this world. And he goes on to say that what the world considers foolish and scandalous actually displays not only the absolute wisdom of God, but the full extent of his power. A power that he has been using on behalf of his people ever since their slavery in Egypt during the time of Moses. Which brings us to our Old Testament reading for this week, because if you remember, we've been looking as well at the book of Exodus. And we talked about as we travel through this, our Christian lectionary and the celebrations of the Christian year, I also want us to focus on seeing Jesus Christ in all of the Bible, not just the New Testament. So remember, we're going to be looking at some Old Testament Torah readings. And I want us to be grounded in the fact that, as we've said before, that it's Jesus that's the great object of all of Scripture. He's the scarlet thread that's woven throughout the narratives, making them a whole lot more than just a collection of little individual stories, but the greatest story of how God worked through history to save a people for himself. So our Old Testament reading starts in Exodus today, chapter 6. It says, When the, the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. But Moses argued with the Lord, saying, I can't do it. I, I'm such a clumsy speaker. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? So you see, Moses is worried about his human ability. He's worried about his personal eloquence and the fact that now in the eyes of the Egyptians, he's just a low-class nobody. But you know, he didn't realize yet that that was exactly the point. One commentator described it like this. He said, God was telling Moses, yes, you have a hard time speaking. Yes, you have a disability. But that's not a reason not to take the job. On the contrary, you have this handicap because I have selected you to take this job. And he continues writing, he said, had Moses been an eloquent and gifted speaker, there would always be room for the skeptics to claim that the Jewish people had accepted the Torah and its truths and its mandates only as a result of Moses' charisma. He says, after all, a glib, captivating speaker can convince people of just about anything. But because of this handicap, it was actually a challenge to have to listen to Moses. And it became eminently clear that we did not accept the word of God because we were wowed by Moses. We accepted the word of God because we were wowed by him. We didn't accept the word of God because we were wowed by Moses. They accepted the truths of the scripture because they were wowed by God. And that's a whole different way to think about it, isn't it? In the text in Exodus, he continues, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh will demand, show me a miracle. When he does this, say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down in front of Pharaoh and it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called on his own wise men and sorcerers and these magicians did the same thing with their magic. They threw down their staffs which also became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Pharaoh's heart, however, remained hard. He still refused to listen just as the Lord had predicted. And you know, if we had time to read through all of the rest of that Old Testament text for today, it goes from Moses' first encounter here with Pharaoh through the first six of the ten plagues that descended on Egypt. And even if you remember just from the blockbuster movie and not from the text, you know, you've got the, the plagues of frogs and, and blood and lice and pestilence and, and boils and kind of enough to just make your skin crawl thinking about it, isn't it? But what I really want you to notice from the text 
from the reading is how the wise men of that day, the philosophers, the, the gurus, Pharaoh celebrity teachers, if you will, tried to mimic and keep up with the power and the wisdom of God and his anointed representatives. Right? First, they, they duplicated Aaron's transformation of a staff into a serpent. Now, maybe it didn't go exactly as they had planned, but they held their own at first. Then Exodus later says that Aaron used his power to turn the Nile into blood, but again, the magicians of Egypt used their magic, and they turned water into blood too. So Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he refused to listen to Moses, just as the Lord had predicted. Pharaoh's magicians were also able to replicate the, the plague of frogs. But when they try to copy the third plague, the plague of lice, they fail. And eventually, these high-class celebrity charlatans who are embarrassed and scandalized that the power of God is channeled through these two shabby-looking, wandering shepherd nobodies, Moses and Aaron, they're forced to admit their limitations. And so the magicians don't even try to replicate the fourth and the fifth and the sixth plagues and finally recognize them as a clear demonstration of God's absolute sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And that's something as a Reformed church that we focus on. Because in that same vein, the point of the plagues wasn't only to punish the Egyptians, but also to demonstrate God's providence to his people as well. Because at the very end of this Old Testament portion today, we read God's word to his people saying, but I have spared you for a purpose. I've spared you for a purpose to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. But what's God's fame? What is it that displays his greatness and his glory except the overabundant mercy and love found in the grace of God and his willingness to save a people who weren't even looking for him? Who weren't even looking for him? Do you see how brilliant and clear God's wisdom is here so that in his sovereign hand, the plagues that were a bad thing were not only intended to crush the Egyptian slave masters and their cruel king into submission, but at the same time, those same circumstances also provided evidence of God's power and his wisdom to his own enslaved people, just like he's done for us through the death of Jesus Christ, where the, the horror and the brutality of the cross, a cross that's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to us Gentiles, a place where God displayed his righteous judgment and his relentless love at the same time for all of us who are enslaved by the power of sin. Do you see, you see how both passages we looked at today actually point to the fact that God intentionally uses what the world considers foolish. He uses what the world considers weak and what the world considers useless so that all of human pride and self-reliance is refuted. And all the soothsayers and oracles of our modern day who try to counterfeit God's truth fall flat on their face. Just like uh, media... Icon Oprah Winfrey, who, although she's previously claimed to be a Christian, has for the last decade or so been actively and increasingly advocating New Age wisdom and theology. On January 1st, there was a program called Oprah and Friends that offered a year-long course of New Age teaching and something called A Course in Miracles. It provided a lesson a day for a year that promised to teach its students to completely rethink everything they believe about reality. And then it starts out in uh, partway through it, Lesson 29 says, it asks you to go through your day affirming that God is in everything that I see. That's okay. That's a pretty innocent way to start out. 
But then you get to lesson 61 that tells you to repeat, I am the light of the world. Say to yourself, I, I am the light of the world. But we all know who the real light of the world is, don't we? And then you come to lesson 70 that teaches the student to believe my salvation comes from me. My salvation comes from me. And if you follow that advice, you end up with what one Christian author has called nothing but a newly packaged, positive thinking spirituality that's tailor-made for the empty souls of our postmodern age. Because the philosophy that those folks espouse promise meaning without truth, acceptance without judgment, and fulfillment without any self-denial. In fact, she's got someone that she works with, a New Age uh, writer called Deepak Chopra, who's collaborating with her on the eighth edition of what they call the uh, Oprah and Deepak 21-Day Meditation Experience. And he writes in one of his books, he says, this is his quote, he says, in reality, we are divinity in disguise. And that the gods and goddesses in embryo that are contained within us seek to be fully materialized so that true success is the experience of the miraculous unfolding the divinity within us. Scary stuff, isn't it? But you know, despite all that new age wisdom, there's one thing the Bible is clear on, and that is I am not God and neither are you. I am not God and neither are you. And the funny thing is, despite the name, those teachings aren't wisdom and they aren't even new. Because it's the same old lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden when he tempted her to eat from the deadly forbidden fruit in Genesis 3. The serpent said, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God. You should be like God. And Satan sure pulled off a real doozy with the people of this New Age movement and convinced them that they are not only like God, but that they are God. And that they're personal wants and opinions and desires become the arbiter of what is actually good and evil. You get to decide, right? Decide for myself. So the question, not only for the world, but for the church this morning, is to ask ourselves, why do we spend so much time striving for success and groping for human knowledge and wanting to be the personal arbiter of truth and trying to find meaning and purpose in the world's pursuits when God has rendered them all so foolish? And when instead, God's wisdom and his way transcends race and culture and, and, and gender and always leads, always leads to unity and hope and healing in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's leveled at the foot of the cross because those who come to the cross in faith not only experience, but discover true power and real wisdom. Real wisdom that leads us right back to where we started today with that letter Paul was writing to the Corinthians. He continues on from where we left off saying, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those things who were powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Because the truth here is, God chose the weak to shame the wise. Through the foolishness of Paul's preaching and through Moses' speech problem and through Aaron's weakness, he, he chose the weak. And before you look around to see who that might apply to, the truth is it's you and me. Right? It's us. Plain and simple, there's no way around it. We're, I'm the weak one. We are the weak one. 
And it's hard to know at first really how that should hit you, you know, when you think about it. I mean, did, did God pick us because his standards were so low? Like if, if, uh, if I went to Vicky and said, honey, why, why did you pick me? Why me? And she says, well, you were foolish and low class and not very attractive, so I just had to have you. <laughs> right? I just had to have you. Or when you were back in grade school and the teams were picked up on the playground, did you ever hear the team captain say, hey, I'll take that weak one over there? Right? But you see, that's just it. That's what God does when it comes to our salvation and his plan for our lives. That's what God does. We don't make a contribution to it. In fact, that's one of the things that makes God's message of the gospel so offensive is it's full assault on human pride. Because God wants to take us right down to the very depths of ourselves and teach us that if there is any power, if there is any strength, if there is any wisdom, that that power is in God and not in us. See, God doesn't need to make us into performers and into superstars in order to save us. Instead, he's looking for men and women who have hearts that say, Lord, I'm I'm nobody. I'm weak. I'm nothing without you, and I trust you alone to save me, and I'm willing, if you're willing, for you to use me. And if you haven't done that already, if you haven't discovered that calling for yourself, I pray that you'll do it today. That today will be the day that the Lord helps you see the beauty and the truth and the wisdom of a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and to rely on his strength and not your own. Because the truth is the grace of God is not an extreme makeover. His grace isn't therapy. Salvation isn't something we can make happen by following a certain number of steps or a how-to manual. It doesn't come to you because you were born into a good family. It doesn't come to you because you worked harder than everyone else. It doesn't come to you because you were smarter or more spiritual or, or more worthy. It doesn't come to you because you desired it more than anyone else did. Grace and salvation comes to you from God, by God, and through God alone in the person of Jesus Christ, whose plan of salvation doesn't look anything like the wisdom that we might have expected, but was exactly the wisdom that we needed. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we, we thank you, although it's hard for the things that destroy our own pride and our own self-reliance. And help us instead, Lord, to rest in you. Father, I pray, Lord, for all those here today, especially myself, who, who ask themselves, why me? Why, why this? Why now? And I ask you, Lord, to supernaturally open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truth of the gospel, and then to lead and guide us in the plan that you have for our lives. Because then it will be, Lord, not only for our good, but for your glory. Father, I ask that you would bless the fellowship that we're about to have later after worship. I ask that you would bless the food, uh, that it would nourish our bodies. I ask that you would bless the hands that prepared it. And I ask, Lord, that all of our fellowship would bring glory to you through Christ our Lord. Amen.